Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. ESPN sports columnist and best-selling author Ian O'Connor wrote a biography on Bill Belichick, one of the most successful and controversial coaches in NFL history. On this week's Fordham Conversations, WFUV's Vinnie DeBellis and Emmanuel Babari sit down with Ian O'Connor to discuss his book, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Then later, I sit down with them to dig even deeper and get the scoop on what they couldn't put in their interview. Um, so my first question for you regarding this book is, what's the biggest thing you learned in writing so much and sort of just studying the history of Belichick? Well, after studying for three years and talking to 350 people about him and his uh, family and his legacy and all those things, I, I think the, the gap between the person you see in those news conferences every week as, uh, as opposed to the human being away from the facility, uh, his friends describe him as a normal guy who can be charming and generous and kind and approachable and engaging and all those things. And I think that's a human being that most of America would have a hard time envisioning if they just know the Bill Belichick that they see at the podium uh, during the week. So uh, it's a Jekyll and Hyde type of situation. I think Belichick has created a one-dimensional character that he plays on TV for a strategic reason. And I, I did not realize when I started the process that the gap between those two people were as big and wide as it really is. So uh, I guess that was the most uh, surprising and enlightening thing. And what I tried to do with this book is really paint a full human portrait of the man and not just the coach. And hopefully I pulled it off. In terms of his core, something you did pull off is unleashing uh, basically what formed this character in Bill Belichick. And you have two real models that he looked up to uh, as coaches throughout his youth. And Al Laramore at Annapolis, Steve Sirota at Phillips Academy. Which one do you think more demonstrates him today? The Al Laramore, the my way or the highway, all-inclusive, simple style of coaching? Or the Sirota, tough guy, but not my way or the highway, the very schematic type of approach? Well, it's a good question. I really, uh, and I don't want to give you a cop-out answer, but I really think he's a combination of both because Laramore's attention to detail and focus on the fundamentals was so important in shaping Bill, even though he would run only four plays in a game. He would run off tackle, basically effectively tell the opponent, here's what we're going to do. You try to stop us. We are going to out-execute and out-detail you. That's how we're going to beat you. And I think you see that still, or through the years, you see that narrative thread of fundamental precision, which is also something that Bill got from the Naval Academy, where his father had been a coach for, for many, many years. And you could see that in his program. But Sirota at Andover, the prep school experience, he was a chameleon where every week he would change his game plan based on the opponent he was facing. It was not, it was the antithesis of a system program at Andover, and I think that's what Bill has basically with the Patriots. It, it's a, a team that can be entirely different one week to the next. So uh, I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that his father was probably the biggest coaching influence in his life, just teaching Bill uh, the fundamentals of breaking down a, a game, a tape, uh, diagramming plays, what to look for when scouting. And young Bill, when he was six, seven, eight years old, he loved going with his father on road trips. And Steve Belichick, when he was at the Naval Academy, his main responsibility was scouting the advance or the next opponent. He rarely saw Navy play a game. He was always busy on the road getting ready for the following week. Uh, I think finally, along those lines, I think Steve Belichick personally just 
some of the things he did in his life, for instance, being in the U.S. military during World War II, he was on Okinawa, which was going to be the staging area for the invasion of Japan if that happened. Thankfully, it didn't. But uh, he was in a segregated officers' club, and one of the first black naval officers in the U.S. military in the Navy, uh, Samuel Barnes, later became an executive with the NCAA. He walked in, and most of the, all of the white officers walked out in protest except one, Steve Belichick. He befriended Barnes, and and uh, in talking to Samuel Barnes' daughter, Olga, she told me that they became roommates and, and that the Belichick name really resonated with their family over the years just in terms of kindness and decency and fairness. So Bill Belichick came out of a household that was way ahead of its time in terms of race relations in this country. And I think when, when you ask how can a guy with that kind of persona inspire and connect with the modern athlete, particularly the African-American athlete, I think if you look at his household, you, uh, you find a pretty important clue why. We're talking with Ian O'Connor, senior writer, ESPN, and New York Times bestselling author of four books, most recently, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Ian, just sticking with the whole development of Belichick, you know, attending Wesleyan, how big of a role do you think that had in his upbringing? It's not exactly a football powerhouse or a, a route that you see many NFL geniuses take to, to the NFL. How, how big of a role do you think that played? Well, very formative years, and not much was ever written about them, uh, which was good for me because I really felt like I, that was one of the more enlightening chapters for the reader because Bill's four years at Wesleyan really hadn't been explored in any depth anywhere else. And he was not a good football player. Uh, he had an incident, really, uh, that, that shaped him in a certain way where uh, during his sophomore year, a coach was trying to run a drill where they thought they could block the point after attempt uh, watching on film, they thought they saw an opening up the middle against or, or with an upcoming opponent. So what they did was they took uh, Belichick, who was the backup center, and used him as a guinea pig, lined up three defenders, basically blew him up 10 to 12 times in a row and until his leg snapped. And he was so angry and dismayed over what the coaching staff, particularly one coach, did to him in that practice. He walked away from football for a year and a half. But I think the thing you see there is he never said a word to the athletic administration about that incident. He probably could have gotten that coach fired or at least in tr gotten him in trouble. And he just sucked it up because he thought that's what he did in football. He sucked it up and, and you don't say anything. And uh, at times, I think, in his uh, organization in New England, you, you see that a little bit and maybe even in Cleveland as well. But Belichick was a better lacrosse player by far than he was a football player. Loved lacrosse. And one other anecdote I have in the book is he had a teammate, a young teammate, who was a novice, and Belichick was a senior. The guy had trouble catching the ball because he never played lacrosse before. He was a really good athlete. And Belichick uh, said to the guy, his name was John McVicker, hey, John, give me your stick. Let me take it home for, for the night. So Belichick takes it home, brings it back the next day, and created an illegal pocket, a deeper pocket to help him catch the ball than what was allowed. And he had a string loose in that netting. He hands it to John. John says, well, what's this? And this, this looks illegal, and Bill says it is. If the ref wants to see that stick in competition, before you hand it to him, turn away from him, pull on this loose string, and it'll make it legal, then hand it to him. So I think that gives you a little window on Bill's competitive soul as a very young man. And, of course, over the course of his coaching career, we see that side of him pop up again and again. 
definitely a competitive soul. Also, some of those core values we were mentioning. Transitioning to some of his NFL time, he's had uh, some scandals he's been involved with in Spygate and, and Deflategate. And you had some interesting perspectives in the book when you mentioned uh, Deflategate and how that all unfolded. Uh, do you think Belichick not openly defending Brady right off the bat had something to do with those core values uh, growing up? I, I think it, it had more to do, guys, with Belichick uh, was the face of Spygate, right? Spygate in 2007. And Tom Brady and everyone else in that organization benefited from, from that illegal filming operation as much as Bill did, but Bill was the face of it. So really, uh, when Deflategate in the early hours of that case, it was pretty clear in that Patriot organization that a lot of people did not or had serious doubts about Brady's story. And later on, when some science came in, particularly New England-based science, that uh, they could rally around, they moved away from doubts about Brady and, and embraced the science that said, hey, this was the ideal gas law. There was nothing uh, sinister going on here. But I think Belichick said early in that case, I already had my gate. Tom's taking this gate. I'm not going to have two lethal strikes on my resume. <laughs> this one is Tom's baby. And I actually, in looking at Belichick, his press conferences during that case, I really believed he was credible that if the flake happened, he had nothing to do with it. And talking to people around the league, I found that even people who didn't like Bill, including some bitter rivals, believed that as well, that they didn't think now. They, they thought he was lying in Spygate, that he didn't simply misinterpret a rule, that he clearly was cheating. But in Deflategate, they thought that that was Brady's deal. And uh, so that was interesting to me that uh, people who I would consider antagonists of Belichick, rivals, that they actually did believe his story, that he had nothing to do with that one. Vinny DeBellis and Emmanuel Barbari talking with Ian O'Connor, author of Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Ian, I saw an interview from last year, I believe it was, where you referenced the tuck rule game as the moment you started to really believe in Belichick as a coach. What was it about that game that was so iconic to you as someone, I don't remember watching the game live, I was too young, but just watching highlights of it being in the snow, it just seems like such a legendary, iconic game. What was so special about it? Well, the the weather conditions were so brutal to find a way to win that game and Vinatieri was just unbelievable uh, in that game. I mean, the kick he made uh, to tie was just absolutely absurd, maybe the greatest pressure kick I've ever seen. But I actually think the following uh, playoff game uh, against the Steelers and the AFC Championship game, because Brady got hurt in that game. So now you had a quarterback in Drew Bledsoe who missed a a big part of the year with a near-fatal injury uh, caused by Mo Lewis of the Jets in week two that, that gave the job to Brady. And Belichick really devastates Bledsoe when he's healthy by not giving him his old job back and staying with Brady. So he was marginalized on that team. All of a sudden, in the AFC Championship game at Pittsburgh, Brady's out. Bledsoe's got to play again. To find a way to win that game, even if they lost to the Rams in the Super Bowl, which turned out to be an epic victory uh, for Belichick and the Patriots, I, I, I thought that Wow, that, there, there's some coaching, serious coaching involved in winning that game on the road when Brady gets hurt. Now you have to turn back to a guy who was really upset about his job being taken away. And not that Bledsoe was great when he came in, but he was good enough, and they found a way to win that game. To me, that was really, I don't want to say that was the beginning of the Belichick dynasty, 
But that is a game where you can see that there were there was a lot more to that program than Tom Brady. Speaking of it being more than just Tom Brady, page 366 of your book, just a little tease here, a direct quote from one of his assistants, I don't think the coaches view Tom as special as everyone else in football does. Mr. Kraft thinks Tom is the greatest gift ever, but the coaches don't. So they think in that system they could turn any of the top 15 quarterbacks in the National Football League into Tom Brady's caliber. Do you disagree or agree with that sentiment? Well, I think the context of that quote, you have to go back to that period of time. So that's before uh, Garoppolo was drafted in the spring of 2014. And if you look at Brady's numbers and his arm strength, things were diminishing. Uh, They were concerned in the organization that Brady was now trending the wrong way and because of age and, and, and everything else. So, uh, I, I think that quote was very accurate. I know people have looked at it now and, and looking at Brady with five rings and arguably the, uh, I don't even think it's argument anymore, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. But back then he had won three rings and, and none since 2004. His arm strength was clearly an issue in practice and in games. And, and they drafted Garoppolo for a reason. Belichick said that night, he cited Tom's age and contract status when he drafted Garoppolo. Things he never says publicly, but he did. And he said, I'd rather be early than late at this position. So I think that quote was hardly crazy. In fact, I think, and checked it with some other people, pretty accurately reflected what they were thinking at the time. There was a reason they drafted Garoppolo. That reason was they were concerned about Tom's age and his arm, and they thought Garoppolo was going to succeed him in short order. And, and he almost did. I mean, it's just that Brady outplayed the system, and Garoppolo's presence and other things elevated Brady to a higher level, where he won two more Super Bowls. He appeared in three and almost appeared in four and won a league MVP past his 40th birthday. So it was Brady outplaying the Belichick software that led to Garoppolo being traded. But there was some legitimate concern uh, four years ago when that decision was made. Ian, I've seen this question the past few years, especially being tossed around a lot. Just straight up, more important to the Pats' success over the past 15 or 20 years, Brady or Belichick? Well, <laughs> that's a million-dollar question, yep. right? And I've gotten that a lot. And, of course, when I'm pushing a book on Belichick, I'm a little biased, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I would say this. I mean, each guy is worth at least one ring to the other and to anyone else. Uh, who's who's very good or competent anyway in the NFL. I think Brady would be worth a ring to whether it be Harbaugh or or any other Tomlin or Dungy, any of the good coaches over the years who won one or two. He would add one at least, and I think Belichick would do the same to a quarterback who had one or two. Uh, Together, they needed each other to be this great. There's no doubt about that. Sort of like uh, Bill Russell and Red Auerbach, how they needed each other to win all those rings. But I think... If I had to pick one, and again, I'm biased, I would go with Belichick because he created that entire culture around Brady. And I think uh, if I had to make a pick, and it's, it's splitting hairs, uh, I, I would go with the person who created the organization and hope that we found a very good quarterback, albeit not another Tom Brady, somewhere along the line. Ian O'Connor, senior writer at ESPN. Simple question Considering you didn't get an actual quote from Belichick and got all these surrounding perspectives, what do you think Belichick's reaction to your book would be? Well, I don't know. I sent him the book in a note about uh, 10 days ago, and I haven't heard a word. I don't really care if he sees it as positive or negative, and actually there's plenty of both in the book. Uh, I, I just would want him to see it as fair. 
if, if he says this was fair, that's good enough for me. And that's all I ever want to be. And when I sent him a note, I, I basically said that. I, I hope you find this to be fair and exhaustive. And um, th- those are the two ideals I was shooting for. And, and some people are going to see it as positive, some as negative. That's in the eye of the beholder. But uh, I want everyone to see it as fair, and I hope that's, the, that's how they take it. And, and certainly that was the intent when I started this project. Ian, last question for you here. Just looking into your crystal ball, if you go five years down the line, you'd assume Brady's not still playing in the league, but who knows with him. Uh, what do you think happens after Brady retires? Do you see Belichick sticking around in New England, or do you think they both go out at the same time? Could you see him ever coaching somewhere else? What do you think ends up happening? How is this story written in the end? Well, I talked to Brady on the phone uh, in March of 2017, and we were talking about playing at age 45, 46, 47. Uh, we weren't stopping at 45. And wow. he, he, did, he did not shoot that down. So, in fact, he embraced it. So I think he's got a lot of years left. Belichick's a young 66 and I think he's got a lot of years left, too. So the only scenario, and this is maybe a 2% deal that I can see where he takes another job, would be the Giants' job. That was always a dream job of his, and if Shermer doesn't work out, and he wins ring number six with Brady and decides, you know what, I'm going to let Josh McDaniels, he deserves a second chance after his disastrous run in Denver, and I convinced him to not take the Colts' head coaching job last year. Uh, maybe in a couple of years, if they win that sixth ring, hand it off to McDaniels, who has a very good relationship with Brady, and let those two end together. And if the New York job is opening up, that's where I want to finish my career because they told me years ago I wasn't good enough to replace Bill Parcells. And it would be a full-circle experience for him. But again, it's probably unrealistic. It's probably a fantasy scenario for a Giants fan. Uh, but it is the only job he would ever even remotely consider and I suspect he will retire in Foxborough as the greatest of all time. Ian, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Um, and congrats on the book. Thanks so much, Ian. Hey, if, I could say, if I could say one of last course. thing. The, uh, if anyone wants a signed or personalized uh, book, uh, call uh, this number, 201-445-0726. That's bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I'll run in there and sign it and personalize it, and we'll get it sent to you. Awesome. Awesome stuff. That's Ian O'Connor, senior writer, ESPN, New York Times bestselling author of four books. Most recently, Belichick, the making of the greatest football coach of all time. Go out and get his book. It's uh, it's a really awesome, like like we said, comprehensive history of uh, Belichick, one of the most polarizing figures in sports over the past 20, really of, of, of all time, I think. Just Belichick is incredible. I really enjoyed it, and it really opens the debate to uh, Belichick versus some of the greatest coaches of all time. You just heard Ian said it. Uh, arguably the greatest of all time, and he expects him to retire in Foxborough and really put an end to what an interesting story, and I think the book really encapsulates that in the best way possible. Yeah, so great stuff from Ian, and uh, you, you know, Belichick's missing out if he doesn't take a look at that book. I think, I think as much as he's busy right now, he's definitely opening up that copy to see if it's an accurate representation of... Uh, of his life and his career and I, th- I think he, he will find that it is so he should definitely open that up I'm Robin Shannon, and as Fordham Conversation continues, I sit down with the two hosts who you just heard interview ESPN senior writer Ian O'Connor about his book, Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time. Vinny DeBellis is WFUV's sports producer. Hi, Vinny. How's it going? Good. And Emmanuel Bobari is WFUV's sports reporter and game broadcaster at Fordham Athletics. 
How are you? Good. So first off, I want to ask you guys, what was your impression of author Ian O'Connor? I mean, the the first thing that comes across in the interview is just how well-rounded he is in his sports knowledge and how much he just has a passion for football and sports all around. But in, in his previous books, you know, it's not all football stuff, but just how deep he got into the Belichick stuff. You can tell that he was really passionate about it when he was writing it. Yeah, I think it really came off how passionate he was about the subject, the fact that he was able to get 300-plus sources just to talk about the coach who wouldn't give him a quote for the book, showed how much he wanted to learn about the Patriots dynasty and football in general. Most well-versed in football, I would say, but he wrote a book about the Yankee dynasty mm. and several other topics, so he came on and you could tell from the minute we started talking to him how much he wanted to talk about the subject, even after doing all that research. And he didn't get a chance to interview Belichick, and you guys didn't get a chance to ask him much about that. Why didn't he get the interview with Belichick? I think it's typical Bill Belichick fashion that he's not going <laughs> to give any interview that he doesn't need to give very tight-lipped and keeps everything close to himself. You know, he, He's not going to talk any more than he needs to, and I think that's the whole Belichick persona that he likes to give off and just not give any information that, that he doesn't need to. And you'll see this before you even get into the book, that Belichick actually went to some of his closest friends and mentors and told them not to speak with <laughs> uh. Ian uh, because he wants his life to be so close knit. He really didn't want that true side of him, that soft side of him to come out, more of a closed book. So I really thought it was interesting that he not only didn't give quotes to Ian, but he tried to close off everyone else that could have given him really good material. He seems like a very private person. Right, yeah. Did you get that feeling from the book when you read it? Yeah, definitely. But one of the things that was interesting that Ian brought up, actually, was that the persona that Belichick sort of gives off to, to the media and to, to the rest of the NFL and the whole sports world is a little bit different than who he is in his oh. private life and that he is a bit more personable and laid back and not this uh, just super villain that, that sports makes him out to be. You always wonder how the Patriots win all these championships with a guy who just sits on the sideline in a, in a hoodie and, and can't really say anything to the media. But there has to be another side to him that motivates his team and meshes together these just fantastic, dynamic football teams year in and year out. So I think this exposed a little bit more of that and at least where he got these values. It seems like he's trying to, Belichick is trying to keep his reputation or keep who he is totally away from everybody and I'm wondering why we have to maybe you guys will interview him one day and uh, <laughs> get that great. out of him um, so how would you describe Ian's writing style in his book especially for someone who may not be a sports fan but might like to read biographies what do you think his style is like you know I think he makes it ac accessible for someone who's not a sports fan and I think the best writers best sports writers can connect to people who are not just total sports nerds and make make it into a human interest story where you're, you're following Belichick's life so that it's not so much the, the nitty-gritty of him as an NFL coach and you're sort of more getting to know his personality and his upbringing, why he is the way he is. So I think uh, just he, he captures human emotion, which I think is really important in any type of writing. You can tell that he's a fantastic writer right when you start reading the book, but I don't think he uses any sort of language that would discourage someone who's not a huge sports fan from picking up the book and learning about Bill Belichick's life just as well as someone who's watched the NFL for years. Maybe someone who's watched the NFL for years would have more of a fascination into the subject and would get the book in the first place, but I think his writing style is conducive to the non-sports fan, and I think he really does a great job of painting that timeline and kind of grabbing you in in a way where it's not just like this happened 
then that happened, then that happened, and kind of boring you. And you touched a little bit on uh, Belichick and quarterback Tom Brady. So was there anything in that book that uh, you didn't get to talk with Ian O'Connor about in the interview? Because their relationship seemed contentious, Tom Brady and uh, Belichick. What did what were you, What was your takeaway from, from, from that? Yeah, so Brady and Belichick, it's interesting throughout their whole career, there, there was really no public knowledge on any – sort of issues that the two of them had up until sometime last year. So they went maybe 15, 16 years with absolutely nothing. The public would assume t- totally good. And then last year there were reports from ESPN coming out that the two might have had some issues. And then Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots for all these years, got tangled in. And it was, it was this story about uh, struggle for power and who was really in control in New England and all these sort of question marks coming up after the the Pats had been so good for all these years. So I thought it was interesting how – all of this came up really out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it's a really interesting topic, whereas a few years ago people would say you're crazy if anything like out of New England. guys get along great. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. The, the team is. If they were at odds for all these years, they did a miraculous job of, A, closing that book, and then, B, being able to deal with that and still create that camaraderie on the field because a head coach to a quarterback is arguably one of the most important uh, relationships you can have. But I think the fact that the book kind of exposes how Kraft and Belichick was an arranged marriage would lead you to believe that this coming out this past year, maybe Belichick and Brady all these years was sort of an arranged marriage and they just dealt with it and they were so talented at what they did that it just moved on. It's like they kept it in the family. Right, yeah. Do you think Deflate Gate had anything to do with some of this rising tension? Probably did. There is a chapter in the book that does highlight Deflate Gate and how Belichick did not leap to Tom Brady's defense and how he kind of tried to separate himself from it. He was already involved with Spygate and linked to that. And clearly... Deflategate was more of a Brady thing in his mind, so he didn't want to show that his values were able to stoop down to that. So I definitely think that could be a contributing factor to some tension, considering your head coach of so many years doesn't leap to your defense when you're potentially facing suspension time. And one of the most interesting things that I thought Ian talked about in the interview a little bit was how when you think about Deflategate and also Spygate, which was an incident that... Uh, was Spygate? I never heard Spygate of was, I think it was around 2007 or 2008, where the Patriots got hit for tampering charges. I, I think it was against the New York Jets, and Belichick was sort of the one who took the hit for that. And he... Uh, in, in the tampering in, with what? What was what was he I think of tampering? They, they were illegally spying on the Jets, some sort of oh, uh, like their plays or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, okay. something that might have been game to them back then, but clearly was breaking NFL rules. Okay, and so uh, Belichick sort of took the hit for that whole Spygate thing, and then about around ten years later, when Deflategate comes about. Belichick didn't want to take the hit for that, and sort of that was going to be Brady's thing because Belichick, he couldn't have two blemishes on his record, so he sort of uh, doled it out to to Brady instead. So I thought that was interesting how Ian sort of uh, assigned the blame, one sort of incident each, instead of Belichick taking the the hit for both of those. How did you guys get into sports? Let's start with Emmanuel. Um, So I was exposed to sports kind of my whole life, and my brother played basketball. He still plays college basketball at uh, Princeton, so... I played basketball in high school, and then after I injured myself my sophomore year, I got into the whole broadcasting aspect of sports, kind of found a passion for it, and now I'm here, spiraled into a bunch of opportunities that I'm grateful for. 
Vinny? Yeah, I feel like I've just been passionate about it my whole life. I mean, my, my parents have videos of me as like a three-year-old just going crazy in front of the TV watching basketball before I even knew what was going on there. So it's always just been a sort of second nature passion to me. I played sports growing up, but even just just watching them and sort of being in the role I am right now, I feel like I've always had a passion for it. And obviously, uh, you and others cover sports for WFUV, but what makes the WFUV sports reporters a team, all of you guys as a group? Well, I'd say just the one-on-one is such a cool experience. There's so many moving parts for anyone who w- w- comes in and sees the one-on-one or a football broadcast to just to see how many moving parts there are. It's not just the host who's talking. There are producers, there are engineers. For those who don't know what one-on-one is. What oh, one-on-one, uh, longest-running sports call-in show in, in, in New York, and it's been going for a while, always uh Saturday afternoons when there's not football and not basketball, one to four, and we'll have guests like Ian on, and we'll have we'll, we'll just be talking sports, just like Mike Francesa, any anyone else. We, we are on the New York air airwaves, so it's it's just such a cool experience that you really won't get at any other school. One of my favorite things about the FUV experience, hosting one on one, but also producing. It's really cool. And again, one-on-one can be heard where and what time? Uh, 90.7 FM, WFUV, every Saturday, 1 to 4 p.m. And you can hear us run down everything that's going on in sports, take calls, take the phone calls, and also talk to some of the best guests in sports. I'd like to thank my guest, Vinny DeBellis and Emmanuel Bavari. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Robin. And I'd also like to thank my senior producer, Maria Koff, and producer, Andrew Millman. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. So I keep big bills up in my heart on the